This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is brought to you by Luke Weiser Bamboo Fly Rods. Each of Luke's rods is handcrafted and built with only the best in craftsmanship and materials. There's simply no limit to the detail he can put into custom orders. Luke has spent years refining his skills, and he's got an incredible talent for building things. But mostly, he's the kind of guy that you trust because he knows that there's both a right way and a wrong way to do something. I personally trout fish with one of Luke's rods, and I can honestly say that it's a work of art, both in my home and on the water. Find out more about Luke at www.lukeweiser.com. Mark Johnstad grew up in Montana with a fly rod in his hand. He first traveled to Mongolia in 1991, where he lived for several years to help establish the protected area. He has been back almost every year since. Mark is at the forefront of taming conservation and helped found Mongolia River Outfitters, a community and environmental-driven organization that uses fly fishing to bring support to the fishery. I traveled to Mongolia to experience the incredible country and met up with Mark while I was there. In this episode of Anchored, we sit down in my yurt to stay warm by the fire and to discuss the incredibly inspiring story behind Mongolia. So um, I'm from Montana. I was actually born in Minnesota. My dad was a Lutheran minister. Um, But then he moved to Montana when I was two and a half. So I grew up in the Shields Valley, so Park County, Will Sal, Livingston. Most people know Livingston because of the Yellowstone. So And you fished growing up? Yeah, a lot. A lot. Yes. So we've just spent the week together. I've been hanging out with you and your son Cooper. And you get like dad of the year award. <laughs> For real. It's unbelievable. Well, so you. was your father with you like you are with Cooper? Were you guys really outdoorsy? Yeah, very much. You know, he's a typical outdoor enthusiast story. Mm-hmm. You know, father who loved to fish and hunt and a kid who loved his dad and tagged along with his dad in the in the woods of Montana. Okay, so then you go to college. I went to a little school called St. Olaf College. It's in Northfield, Minnesota. Okay. And uh, I started out with a, I don't know, kind of messed around with a bunch of different majors and ended up with a stunning major in English literature with a minor in Middle Eastern studies. Oh, you did do that. <laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't have picked you for that. Okay. Yeah, that would explain know. that vocabulary that I noticed the first day. I well, explained the Garrison Keillor lack of a job, right? Okay. The whole like very home <laughs> companion English majors jokes anyway. Yeah. Well, what yeah, but so I mean, how did you Well, I'll let you tell me the story. Cuz well, typically usually when people major in English literature they, they have no job, they're a, have, or they, yeah. they're a waiter. 
Or a fly a fishing, fishing guide, right? So, <laughs> and you are none of those things. No. Um, what did you end up doing after college? Well, it was sort of my college experience that sort of launched me on the international path. Because when I was a sophomore, I went to school at Brzee University and Hebrew University. So I lived in the old city of Jerusalem for about six, seven months. And uh, and went to school in the Middle East. And then for my senior year, I went to school at Cambridge in England. And um, so from kind of from college age, I started spreading my wings. Montana was a, a much different place when I was growing up. I mean, now everybody knows Montana's, you know, the land of the horse whisperer, a river runs through it, right, right, right. you know, all that stuff. And and when I was growing up, Montana was two-lane highways and and cowboys and rural, and I love it. And I, I'm very nostalgic for that Montana. Um, it's, it's disappearing too quickly. But uh, most Montana kids at that time, at least my peers, you know, they wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to figure a way to get out and see the, the, the bigger world. And so I did. And then I, you know, struggled to find a way back to Montana. It's kind of a typical story. Okay. Yeah. So after school in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and sorry, after Cambridge. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Wh- what was your next career? Did the, the fishing thing up in Alaska for a few summers. I was a ski bum in Vail. I taught skiing in Vail for three or four years. I spent a couple summers Spent a lot of time up on the Navajo Reservation, working horses, uh, traveled around Central America a little bit, and, and uh, eventually I ended up out in Washington, D.C., working as a lobbyist for a consortium of, of NGOs. I worked on Capitol Hill, but I worked primarily, uh, well, directly out of the offices of the Sierra Club, and so that was what I did during that period. So, and what was that period? from? Well, I don't know, like mid-20s. Okay, then what happens? Yeah, gosh. Uh, then Mongolia starts coming into the picture. So mm. about 1990, fall of 1990, um, I started thinking that I needed to, to figure out a career path that was more substantial. I had a really good mentor at the, at the club, and, and uh, he said, Mark, you know, you're doing a great job here on Capitol Hill working on Alaska issues, whatever, but you, you need to get an advanced degree because there's going to come a time in your career when it's, you know, you're competing against somebody else for something, and if you don't have an advanced degree, you know, you're probably going to lose, and you're young enough. Go, go. And I turned on my options, English literature major, <laughs> ski bum, you know, whatever. And uh, You went back to school for music. Law no. school, you know. <laughs> Just <kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> like, my only choice is law school, yeah. right? They'll take anybody. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that you was know, my, my, I've got this, you know, she's passed now, but this darling amazing uh, grandmother, Swedish Baptist, very conservative, and but would never say a bad thing about anybody. And I told her, Grandma, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to law school. And she looked at me, and she goes, you know, for her, a lawyer is like a failure, right? If you need a <laughs> lawyer, you have failed in something in your life. You can't settle your own argument or you're in trouble with the law. You failed, right? And so Grandma looks at me, she thinks for a second. She goes, well, I suppose every profession needs a few good people. Aww. <laughs> Well, that's that's kind and in a backhanded sort of in a way. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, God bless her. <laughs> right. So anyway, so so I looked around and and was like, law school is it? Took the LSAT. Did surprisingly well at filling in the little ovals back when one filled in. I don't even know if you do ovals anymore. But anyway, I filled in the little ovals. Did well. Could kind of pick my school. I wanted to go into um, conservation law. I, I didn't oh, want right. to do regular law. I wanted to do environmental law of some sort. Why did that interest you then? You know, I'd spent, you know, growing up in, in Montana, and I'd spent so much of sort of my late teens to mid-20s traveling around the world. I did a bunch of stuff down in Central America and whatnot by then. And just buzzing around. And I was just seeing the wild slowly sucked out of the West in, in, in particular. And so I was kind of sappy to say it, but I mean, that's really become the, the guiding light. The, the purpose in my existence mm-hmm. is how does one live in a way to help conserve the last vestiges of wild, of, of open space that are remaining? on this quickly shrinking globe. And after spending a week with you, I totally believe you. <laughs> I mean, if this was day one of us hanging out, and mm-hmm. this is why I was kind of looking forward to doing this podcast at the end of the week. Kind of looking forward? Come on. 
Yeah, I've been like looking six days of like, okay, I, we're gonna do it tonight. No, nope, yeah. we're gonna do it tomorrow. <laughs> because I wanted to get a better feel for you first. Sure. And I believe you. I really, especially with the conservation stuff, I always like to kind of feel you guys out a bit. Is he legit? Is he sincere? <laughs> and I and I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely see that your heart is in the right place. Oh, so nice. let's explain to the listeners. So right now we are in Mongolia. Mm. We have just finished eight days of rafting. Yeah, yep. seven, seven, eight days on the water. Yeah, we're sitting in our gear. Some people call it a yurt. We've got the wood stove going. We've got a bottle of wine. And we're going to talk about Mongolia now, if that's cool. Absolutely. Can you tell me from the timeline where you go from, from law into Good. Mongolia? Good. Well, they kind of got all mixed up together. So, like I said, 1990, Mongolia was just opening up. I wanted to do to a... Who, when you say opening up, to who? To Westerners. The to walls West. were coming down. The, you know, East, the the German, the wall between East and West Germany was, mm-hmm. was collapsing. The Berlin Wall, the Soviet Union was, was collapsing. And Mongolia was swept up in that same political sea change. And uh, as I mentioned, I was in Washington, D.C. And one of my housemates um, there, uh, I wanted to do, you know, I grew up, on a horse and in Montana and and I wanted to kind of do one last big adventure before I ended up going to law school you know it's like going to law school for me it was like you know it's like buying a it's like a mortgage for your head yeah you yeah. know and I was afraid the only way I was going to be able to pay that mortgage back was by becoming an attorney I thought oh this is this is it man better do one last hurrah so I was going to take camels and, and horses across from Qian to Kashgar go across western China and uh one of my housemates said, no, 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 you know, don't, don't do that. You should check out Mongolia. And I'd heard about Mongolia. My, my mother used to threaten me with going to outer Mongolia if I didn't do the right thing. And, and I'd thought about it, but not in any sort of seriousness. So back then, people would go to the thing called the library. You know, it was fun because I was at the Library of Congress. I was able to go to the Library of Congress. And I went to the Library of Congress and, and up, in, up until the, you know, the 1930s, 1940s, 1930s, there was – Pretty good, like the Roy Chapman Andrews expeditions. There was lots of documentation on Mongolia. It sounded like this fantastic place. It sounded like everything that Montana was or once was or romantically was. Mm-hmm. Then there was nothing until like 1967, uh, William O. Douglas, who's a Supreme Court justice in the U.S., he'd actually been to Mongolia with his wife and wrote a National Geographic article about Mongolia. It's, it's great. I have a copy, you know. Then nothing. Then it sort of dropped off the the, the, the face of the earth. And you so, don't mean fishing literature. You just mean no literature, literature in yeah, general. Yeah, because Mongolia was behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I read was fascinating: big mountains, bears, rivers, desert, nomadic people living on horseback. It's like, yeah, this is my kind of place. I'm going to check it out. So I started digging, digging more. And at that point, you needed an invitation to get to Mongolia, and so from from the government. Okay. And so I was fortunate enough to be in D.C. again, you know, Montana kid in D.C., and so I sort of applied my lobbying skills. And they didn't have an embassy at the time, but they had a, a consulate. So I called the, called the consulate, the first secretary, arranged to have him out for lunch, took him out for lunch with, the, with his interpreter. We sat around, chatted, and I said, hey, I, you know, tell me about your country, and, and I'm really curious about it, and I'd like to go, and, you know, what can I do to help? And this is what I do, and I, I've been working on public lands management and know a little bit about conservation stuff, and maybe that's something that I can help you with. And he's like, yeah, this is very interesting. I can put you in touch with some friends. Long story short, I ended up getting an invitation to go to Mongolia that summer of 1991. Oh, wow. That's a long time ago. Oh, thank you. Were the- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For the record. I was 16. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what were the conservation issues back then? I had no idea. You know? You I, just, no, I, I didn't I, – I no one knew anything about Mongolia. You know, I just – I talked to them a little bit. He's like, okay, I'll get you an invitation and you can go and, and talk to people. And so um, I ended up getting an invitation, sort of a joint invitation from the Ministry of Nature and Environment and this – and they had NGO-type things back then, and this the Mongolian Association for the Conservation of Nature and Environment, MACNI. And everybody, it's a long story, everybody had to be a member of this thing. It was an old Soviet era, like a club. Okay. And uh, I got over here, and one of, another mentor, a guy named Dr. Bachargal, um, who's just become a, a very, very, very close personal friend over the years, he was the Minister of Environment, and really took me under his wing. It was new and exciting times. There were no foreigners here. They were changing from this this communist government into a democracy, a fledgling democracy. It was frontier days. How exciting. It was. And in the 90s, too. 
<laughs> in the 90s. Yes, it, it, in, in the 90s. Well, no, you know what I mean? It's not like this is in the 30s. It's, it's oh, like right, modern day. Yeah. And here you are in this place that's going through all these crazy Absolutely. changes. It's yeah. really exciting. It's a big privilege. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a privilege. And you're not, thinking, you're not thinking fishing at this point. You're just not simply thinking... No, I'm thinking horseback ride. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking I want to ride across this country and take three and a half months and ride a horse from the east to the west before I have to enter the, the cauldron of law school. Yeah, no, nope. that's this all is I want. So cool, Mark. Okay, keep going. Anyway, so I, I talked to them, you know, kind of the gospel according to Mirror for a couple of weeks. I said, Dr. B, this is, you know, what are, what are your issues? What can you anticipate? You know, what's going down? And, and, uh, and at the end, I said, okay, I'll, I'll try to put a grant proposal together for you to get some money from the U.S. government or a funder or something to do a public lands manager training program in the U.S. So you can generate some exposure and understanding about, you know, how conservation operates within a democratic society because they had no experience with that. And he said, great. And I said, okay, well, thank you very much. It's been a lovely couple of weeks. Um, I've got to go now because I've got all my tack. I have a saddle and a pack saddle and I have three and a half months worth of freeze-dried food. I got to take off and go ride horses across your country now. And Dr. B looked at me and he goes, what? He goes, yeah, yeah. He just started laughing. He's, he's, you know, his English wasn't very good at that point. You know, we were with a translator. It's like, oh, you know, basically, oh, little boy, you were so silly. You know, you can't ride across. You're my responsibility. You know, you're here on my invitation. At that point, you actually needed a permit to leave the city boundaries of Ulaanbaatar. A foreigner could not leave the city boundaries of Ulaanbaatar without a permit. And there were check stations. Oh, my God. Transitional periods. So it was fun. But he goes, I tell you what. And they had protected areas. They had 13 small protected areas. That some of them established for 150 years as sort of hunting zones or hunting players. He goes, I like your idea of this modern-day protected area system and this idea of, of sort of, you know, getting the best bits of land in the country under some sort of protected status as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I said, tell you what, and this is where it gets a little funny, you can be my assistant, my international expert, and let's look at some of these places and then you can give me your advice as to whether or not this should be a protected area or not be a protected area. It will cover all your expenses. So you can imagine the, minister, the government of Mongolia basically covering all of my expenses and things that would never happen now. But uh, there was devaluation issues and monetary issues. They had cash. And how old were you at this point? I was younger than now. I was 26 years younger than I am now. Wow. Smart Alec. No. So, <laughs> People need to know because how old are you? I'm 52. 52. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're still, you were a really young man when all this was happening. I was, yeah. Yeah. Cherubic. So I said, fine, let's do that. And so Dr. B and I would sit down and we would, he would say, this is a pretty area. And so I would get on a little putt-putt plane and I'd fly as far as I could and I'd get on a horse and I'd ride around on a horse for a couple of weeks and I'd come back and I'd say, gosh, that was a really pretty place. And we'd have talks with the local communities and stuff like that. We'd say, okay, that one, that's a, that's a good place to make a protected area. That one, that's a good place. So we ended up... Protected from what though? National parks. But just national parks. Were there concerns at that point? Absolutely. What was it? Absolutely. Poaching? Was it mining? What was so, the big? And all of them came to fruition. Okay. We knew, everyone knew, the Mongolians knew, that once the communist system collapsed and there was this huge transitional period, which they're still going through, frankly, mm-hmm. to figure out what capitalism is. It's the same story as Russia or Kazakhstan or any of the old CIS countries, his central central. Asian republics. They've all gone through these issues where democracy came through and a government, in many ways, communism was good for conservation. Um, you know, you had a centralized government that had an authoritarian, a strong control over resource use and resource access, and they were able to manage things. All of a sudden, you have democracy, capitalism that comes through, which is great, you know, but you have a huge incentive to exploit resources for personal gain and you have a way to exploit resources for personal gain and yet you do not have the uh, regulatory environment, the enabling environment in place to manage uh, the use and access uh, to those resources in a way that's mm, sustainable. Right. So all of those things came to fruition. So as soon as, like starting in the early 1990s, the first phase was poaching. 
So there was a big issue with the aphrodisiac market, particularly with the Chinese. So you saw the national herd of, of elk, you know, nine out of the ten. I mean, whatever. They, this country had huge elk, and it, and it was actually fairly big business to come here and, and, and hunt trophy elk. Population went from somewhere estimates between 150 to 200,000 um, head of elk down to 20,000 head of elk in a 10-year period. Ooh, that's Poached out for the aphrodisiac market. Started with the males in velvet, then it went to females, genitalia, tails, the whole thing. So just red deer alone plummets. You also have exploitation of forest resources, and you've seen the forest here really slow to regenerate. You've got you know eight months of winter, seven months of winter. You know the average temperature in Ulaanbaatar is below zero. You know, it's cold, so regen is, takes a long time. You cut down a tree, it takes a long time for that tree to come back. Then they discovered gold, you know, and know lots of other resources: platinum, yeah. uranium, coal, copper, all of which is fine. If you have the regulatory environment in place to make sure that it's managed properly, which they did not. Mm-hmm. So by coming in and trying to establish a sem- an assembly of protected areas, places with higher biodiversity conservation value, higher biodiversity uh, numbers, whether it's Argali or Snow Leopard or... or um, or sacred falcons, or the, you know the huge migrating herds. There's you know, a herd of a million to two million, depends on who you ask. You know antelope, gazelle that migrate on the the eastern steppe. It's you know equivalent to the Serengeti or greater. You know bears, goby bear. There's a huge number of important species here. Everything's and, here. I was shocked to see that. Yeah, you said camels are even indigenous here. Wild camels, half yeah, yeah. the guy. Yeah, so, so cool. in, the, in the Great Gobi here, and then on the other side in China. And there's there's brown bears, and there's boar, and there's, like you said, there's the elk, and there's this there's other wolves deer and with a fang. moose What's and the... musk deer and yeah. roe deer, and the list is long. Yeah. So, the idea of trying to capture an assembly of protected areas that represent the best of that biodiversity conservation um, picture as early as possible was a really smart idea of right. Dr. Bachart. Very smart idea. And whatever I could do to help make that happen, awesome. It was good. Good. It was great fun. So that's that's how things got started in Mongolia. And oh. then I ended up, mm-hmm, yes? But what about the fishing? I mean, you're a fisherman at heart. Sure. Were you not curious about what that was like? Boy, that first summer, I fed myself with a lot of fish. You did? Yeah, because there was nothing but mutton. This this country was, the, the, uh, no one has an understanding. I mean, you go to Ulaanbaatar now and you see... Lamborghinis and Porsches and all this other stuff because they've had this great big gold party, right? Or I still or see a lot minerals. of button on the menu. Yeah, well, that's that's the favorite food, you know, nationally. But it's hard. It's very difficult to explain to someone who is coming to Mongolia for the first time what Mongolia was like in 1991. Yeah. yeah. No cars on the street. No groceries in the grocery store. One bottle of Soviet era soda. No. Coke, maybe a cabbage, maybe some potatoes, nothing. Two hotels in the town, two bars in the two bars in the town. I think my interpreter one morning was late for for uh, for a meeting. Wonderful guy, Biamba, and uh, he was very punctual. And he, you know, he'd been in Afghanistan in the Soviet area, so he was a little twitchy. And like I said, never late. And I was staying in the Soviet era hotel, one of the two. And, and wait in the lobby. It's like an hour late. And Piamba shows up and he's like, Oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Mark. It's like, What? What's wrong? Goes, oh, <sighs> there's a very important cultural event going on. I said, Oh, well, what is it? They're showing a, a movie of, of the West. And we've never seen such a thing. And they're showing everything about the West. And we can see how people in the West live and how they eat and how their families are. And it's a great cultural understanding. But they're showing it in a marathon. And so it's many hours every night. I said, well, that's fascinating. I said, what's the name of this this, this program? Maybe I'm I'll scared. watch it. And he goes, it's called Dallas. No. <laughs> that's so bad. That's so bad. That awesome? <laughs> no. It's awful. That's awesome. Wow. Okay. Okay, so, so I mean that's what it's like now. Now you go to Ulaanbaatar, and as you've seen, I mean it's as modern as anything. There's Louis Vuitton stores. It's yeah, all sorts surreal. of craziness. Yeah. It's it's a hodgepodge. It's a mix. You can still see a glimpse of the old and, and a lot of the new. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, 
Marone, 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 yeah, Marone Tiger. It it felt a little more like what I expected Mongolia to be like. Marone's changed dramatically. However, that airport is the that's the first airport I ever flew into in 1991. Really? Yeah, because I came. This is the first area I went up to Lake Uskol to help put that protected ah. area together. So, with this protected area, what about the people? I mean, when I think nomadic people, I think sure. of Mongolians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Is that a safe? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, sure. What percent you know, of people in Mongolia do you think are nomadic? I know it's a hard question. No, it's not that hard because you, the total population, when I first came in, the total has grown dramatically. Yeah, the total population was a million to a million and a half people when I first showed up. Now we're pushing close to three million. Okay. And most of the population lives in Ulaanbaatar. There's two okay. Mongolias. There's yeah. Ulaanbaatar and the rest of the country. Let's and Ulaanbaatar, frankly, is kind of like a parasite. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the rest of the country. Right. That's so, what interests me. So there you're at half. Right there. Okay. Right? So 1.5 million, 1.5 million. Right. Then it gets to be a little bit of a thumb suck as to how many of those folks are still nomadic or herdsmen who don't live in Somes or IMAGs like you saw. So Marone here is one of the larger Somes in the country. And, that, and when you say Som for other people who don't know, this is a like They're IMAG centers. So the, the country's divided uh, nationally into the, the federal system or the national system, and then the states, which are IMAGs, and then the counties, which are Somes. Oh, okay, thank you. So the IMAG center here is, is Marone in this particular IMAG, and Marone has between thirty and 50,000 people in it. Oh, that many, okay. Um, and then... You know, the SOM centers will have, you know, 1,000, 1,500 in them. So if you take all those numbers, you know, my guess is there's maybe, I don't know, somebody could tell you, and somebody will listen to this and go, oh, Mark, you're so crazy, it's more or less. But I don't know, 750,000 maybe nomads yet. So but nomad is really weird in Mongolia because if you're in the Gobi, those people will move six to ten times a year. And what are they moving for, harvest? No, 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 they're, they're, they're all herdsmen. So very few Mongolians uh, grow anything. It's changing, but but very few Mongolians grow anything, you know, wheat or hay or anything, anything like that. Folks are, are moving because of their herds. They're they're it's all about in search of grass and, and, and water. Right. And so in the Gobi where uh, resources are tighter, they'll move more often. Uh, around here, people will, will move two, three, maybe four times a year. Um, okay. So they'll have their calving, uh, lambing um, area that they'll be in. They'll have their grass cutting area um, that they'll be in. They'll have their summer pastures, their fall pastures, whatever it is. And everybody kind of knows. There's a traditional system there. And everybody kind of knows whose is whose and what's what. And they generally won't um, encroach on One on each other. Space. Yeah, generally. Okay. And then in other places, there's like uh, in the eastern part, in the Buryats, they'll move twice. That's it. Yeah, that's it. They'll have a winter place and a summer place. For the most part, because we're way up in the north, right. and so there's a little bit more of the northern influence. Some people have cabins, but for the most part, it's just a hoshar. It's a corral with a simple lean-to, and then they'll have their gear set up there. And okay. that's what they use for calving and lambing. Then you'll see big piles of dung that they'll burn in the fire during the winter and stuff like that. Right. Okay. When you came in to do all this conservation yeah. work... Mm-hmm. And no, I came were, here to ride horses across the country okay. and got looped into doing conservation After work. you got lassoed into <laughs> doing conservation no, no, no. work. Um, and you were making this, some of the land into parks. How did that mm-hmm. affect the people? Right. Oh, yeah. You know, Mongolians are really interesting. Um, for the most part, Mongolians venerate nature. You know, they have a long-standing tradition of living in harmony with the land. Yeah, yeah. It's being lost um, over time, or it's changing over time. And maybe that sounds the right word. It's getting more complicated over time as people's desires are shifting, as their desires for different material goods Because they're watching Dallas to get a better feel for (laughs) what America is. You know, it's whatever it is, you know, human nature, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, people want TVs, and they want better education for their kids, and they want to motorcycle rather than riding a horse all the time and it's kind of a natural progression you know for those of us from the outside kind of romantic and nostalgic about it you know and i definitely am you know but but you know for the most part people here they've mixed animism with buddhism and so there's a traditional, as I said, veneration for nature. For instance, uh, Mongolians normally will wear upturned toes on the front of their boots. Yeah, why is that? So they don't disturb the earth. <gasps> cool. 
right? And they, uh, fish is an interesting one because we're talking about fish here. And I guess people who listen to this podcast are probably way more interested in fish than the history of Mark. But, you know, fish are the first rung of reincarnation in Buddhism. And because they're considered insects, insects don't blink. Fish don't blink. They're insects. And so fish are a holy species in in Mongolia. Wait, and wait, so, like, so insects are a holy species here? They're, yes, so they don't swap mosquitoes or anything? Yes, they do, because okay. it's complicated. They live on the earth, and they, they hunt, and there are Mongolians who fish. It's a myth that Mongolians never fish, but mm-hmm. there are some that, that, that fish, etc. But I'm just, you know, we're sort of trying to come up with some examples of yeah, yeah. how Mongolians traditionally respect the earth. In fact, if you give a toast, like a traditional a Mongolian toast, if you have a shot of vodka, they will generally, or arhi, or whatever your, your drink of choice is, uh, fermented mare's milk, you know, they will take their ring finger, they will dip it in there, and they will flick a small bit of the alcohol to to Father Sky and also to Mother Earth. And and so there is a, a predisposition mm-hmm. amongst Mongolian people to want to protect the landscape. And, you know, the, the government of Mongolia, who I've worked with forever, you know, fully understands this. In fact, the, the government of Mongolia has declared that they fully intend to protect over 30% of the, the, the territory of Mongolia within some sort of conservation okay. um, area. They're only up to about 15% so far, but that's immense. You know, if you look yeah. at like, some of the protected areas that, that we've worked on in the past in, in this country, you know, the Han Hinti, including the buffer zone, is 2.4 million hectares is one example. You know, Yellowstone National Park, 800,000 hectares. Yeah. What's so it's the, three times the size of Yellowstone. What's the percent in the States? I don't know. If it's 30% here, I'd be curious to know what it is in North America. I don't or know. Or in, in the United States, anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I'm from Canada. Oh, you tricky <laughs> Merkin. <laughs> okay, so then... Okay, so people who still wanted to live in the parks could. They didn't need permits. It's not like no. they came in and changed everything and they hate you. No, no, not at all. And it wasn't me. You know, it's not me. It's, right. the, it's the government of Mongolia. It's yeah. just me trying to help the government of Mongolia get its, you know, mind around its own objectives. Yeah, yeah. And protected areas... You know, folks are geek out about this stuff, but you know, there's you know, the IUCN and others, and you know, there are particulars have a there's a you know, for the rest of the world in the U.S. and, and perhaps in Canada, you get crown lands and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, for all of us, you know, Mongolia, 100 percent of the of the ground is owned by the government, but for some small patches here or there that are leased out, or like the Hoshars we were discussing, you can own a certain like I think it's a half hectare around a Hoshar you can have in fee simple or a long term lease, depending on. But for the most part, all the ground is owned by that by the government. So really, when we're talking about protected areas in this country, we're talking about places where there's a heightened level of land use where the ultimate value of that land use is determined by the long-term conservation of nature. Okay. So they have kind of a, a spectrum of various types of protected areas. For instance, they have the Great Gobi National Park, or strictly protected areas, 5.5 million hectares. And it is an area where only visitors, are, the only visitors are supposed to be scientists and, and people like that. That's a strictly protected area. There's very few nomads that, that live in, in that area. National parks in, in, in this country have a different situation where people can graze in them and, and whatnot, but there's no hunting perhaps that's allowed right. in there. Or grazing is managed to make sure that overgrazing um, doesn't occur. Coming up, Mark and I talk less landscape and more fish. Again, please take a moment to check out Luke Weiser's custom bamboo fly rods at www.lukeweiser.com. Even if you're not in the market for a new rod, it's worth having a look. I know that I've never seen anything quite like it. We're at, right now, we started, we were above the 50th before, but we're at about the 48th parallel right now, which is the temperate zone, which is awesome. There's very few places left in the temperate zone where you can stitch together a float trip uh, 14 days or 15 days or 10 days or whatever it is and have consistently good fishing mm-hmm. in a place that is not polluted, not populated, nobody else around, you know, it's no surreal, infrastructure. Mark. The yeah. only people we've seen are nomads yeah. living in Garris mm. who are living off the land. I mean, we hung out with that one family in the morning and, yeah, yeah. you know, they're sitting there making yak butter and feeding you yak milk and just truly surviving. It was so amazing to see. Well, I think in the last 
five days, we haven't seen anybody. We have seen no one but us. Right. And the pollution, like you said, I mean, it's obviously there's the occasional vodka bottle. Yeah. But like, really, that's the extent of it. No people, no, no development. There's nothing. Right. And then, and then, what did we see today? The the burial grounds. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The burial grounds. There's people buried here from you said when the four, you know, fifteen to sixteen hundred years ago. I just can't think of anywhere else on earth. We had lunch today. In a place where the monks used to hide out, I guess, when there yeah, was all that during the, during the, the Yellow Hat Revolution. So enter the white guy into the, <laughs> into the fishery. Where does the fishing come in now? <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. Is that a white guy thing? I know. Well, I was going to try to podcast a Mongolian because I wanted to give street cred to somebody who was Mongolian. Oh, sure. But that's the funny. more I researched and dove into who the guy was, Mark, you're the guy. <laughs> You just, you are the guy. Tell me about it. So the timeline goes. Right. You know, so the fishing stuff. You know, as I said, I, you know, I, I grew up fishing and I love fly fishing. And, you know, as much as you tease me about my made up spay cast, which are highly effective. I noticed. <laughs> they look great. And we're going to YouTube it now. Just wanted to big. put a name to it as well. Yeah. <laughs> the knucklehead. Anyway, um. That, uh, you know, to, 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 I don't know, to spin it as, as fast as possible. You know, I, I, I've been fishing here forever and I'm, I'm the old guy on the block now when it comes to fishing. My, my buddy Guido Rari, if Guido is even listening to this, Guido came over with a bunch of his friends in 1990. I knew Guido in the interim. We, we had met because I, um, he was roommates with my best friend from Montana at Yale. And so, you know, we, we talked about fishing in Mongolia and, and all the rest. But I, I've been fishing here a, a ton, just recreationally. And then my other really good friends, the, the Vermilions, um, started up Sweetwater. I helped them get that started there. Partner here, their Mongolian partner here is actually my old fishing buddy um, from from days gone by, and I helped them when I was working for. It's a long story, but I was working for the UN here for a long time. I lived here from ninety three through ninety five. Eventually, rode horses across the country, went to Lake Baikal and bought horses, and came down here and rode out to the Kazakhstan border three and a half months in the saddle. Blah blah blah. It was a wonderful, wonderful trip. But um, we need to make a movie about your life. No, <laughs> continue. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, I eventually finished up law school, finally. And I ended up working a ton in the Himalayas, in Bhutan, and then a lot down in Southern Africa. So there's this sort of this period where I was going from Montana to to the Himalaya, to Southern Africa, to Mongolia, and then back to Montana. And my normal job working as a as a consultant for I worked for uh, large scale donors like USAID, the UN, the World Bank um, on large scale conservation programs. I ended up down in Southern Africa working on this community based natural resources management stuff, working with local communities, trying to create incentives for them. To conserve biodiversity through uh, the use, sustainable use of biodiversity, either through tourism, photographic tourism, um, or hunting tourism, or their own consumption of, of resources. Uh, the Germans up here, I, the GTZ, was trying to get something similar off of the off of the ground, and so they hired me to come up to, to back to Mongolia to try to do that. And I and I worked with them a bunch, and it just wasn't resonating. It just wasn't happening with them, and the the way that I hoped that it would happen. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself. Mongolia's given me a lot. You know, it really is. It's really launched my career. It's a, it, it's, it's some kind of kind of a second home. A lot of friends here, etc. Really helped me grow up and mature in in many ways. I said, you know what? I'm gonna see if I can do this myself. Just see if I can I can work on putting in place a community based natural resource management program with my own funding, my own I don't have any money, so my own sweat equity, and work with local communities and use fly fishing as a catalyst for conservation to look at how we can look, value tainment in the river more than valuing tainment on the dinner plate or sold to you know whatever somebody who wants to to to, to buy a by attainment. And, and why did you choose fishing over the hunting? Is it because you can catch and release the fishing? Yeah, the you fish? know, and, and, and hunting, international sport hunting is really not interesting to me. I come from a, I, I hunt a lot um, and uh, back home, but I come from, and, I, and sport hunting has its niche. I, don't don't get me wrong at, at all. I, I'm supportive of sport hunting done in the, in, in the right way. But for me personally, like my father came over here and shot an elk in the, in the mid-1990s, I guess. I was living here in 93, 90 94, 95 ish, I can't remember exactly. But he shot an elk, big, big bull, and it was great. I was living here. 
you know, we butchered it, and I was able to, to eat that elk, you know, for the, for the winter. Right. Worked out great with my own personal ethics. Um, if, just for me personally, I, I, if I shoot it, I eat it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's part of the game. Um, for me, I get it. I have a lot of friends who are, are trophy hunters, international trophy hunters. You know, that's, it's, it's not a problem done properly. Also, the perspective in, or the, the perception, I mean, in Mongolia is uh, often, if you're a hunter, you can't be a conservationist. Okay. Because they have a different, you know, we, we grew up with a different model in the, in the U.S. and in Canada in many ways, mm-hmm. where really the driver of conservation in many places is hunting. Montana is a perfect example, you know, where hunters are conservationists. Perception here is a little bit different. Fly fishing and catch and release fly fishing in particular kind of um, runs a thin line. Uh, between those, because as you said, you know, it's catch and release. Do the locals fly fish? Did no. anybody here fly fish? No, not in the day. Were there any other North Americans who had come over and or Europeans who had come over? You know, and some of his buddies came over in 1990. So they didn't come over with you? No, no, they came over in... Ni- I'm going to put some wood on the fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, they came over in 1990. Okay, got it. On a, I can't remember. I have to ask Guido about it. He came up on the train. He had a great little adventure. And, and they caught some taming, for sure. Um, but... No, and and you know, and then it was me. But again, I just brought my fly rod over here literally to feed myself. So, so I needed a Mongolian partner or somebody we can work with. And I didn't want to make this a me thing, right? So this is really a. It, we don't need to go into the legalities of it. No, no, it's fine. But, but, but before you go down mm-hmm. that route, so Mongolian partner with the initiative being fly fishing as a catalyst for conservation. That's really the 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 the, the catchword there. Um, and so we started out very small to gain the trust of the local communities and to do what we could afford to, to do. When you say we, what are you calling yourself back then? It's, it's Mongolia River Outfitters is okay. the name so of the company. It's always been Mongolia River yeah, Outfitters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Mongolia River Outfitters starts out very small. It's, you know, me with some Mongolian buddies and a couple of rafts and rowing a couple of clients around figuring out taming fishing. And also, at the same time, generating trust with local communities. Local communities are really skeptical about foreigners showing up on the river and fishing. They had a long history of poaching, primarily by there's certain, certain countries which tended to come here. And those countries tended to have anglers who were disrespectful of taming and killed the taming. Right. And it was a big problem. Big problem. And it's still a problem on the edges. It's not a Main Street problem, but it continues to be a problem on the, on the edges that we fight against constantly. So any foreigner, the perception from any foreigner, the, the Mongolians was, what are they doing to our taming? We I mean, had these fish live up to how old? Uh, so taming biology. Um, uh, I, I taming, you know, it's uh, my buddy Zeb and Sadeep, uh, Sadeep Chandra from the University of Nevada, Reno, and Zeb Hogan from National Geographic, um, and and Olaf and a number of other people. They're their colleagues and cohort. They've really uh, led the charge in terms of understanding taming biology. In, in Mongolia. So all credit to them for for this. But generally, and I'll, I'll probably, you know, muddle a few of the, the factoids here, but generally, uh, Mongolian uh, taman, um, hucho hucho taman. Is that the actual That's word? the Latin name okay, thank you. for them. You know, the the lar- world's largest salmonid, biggest trout in the world. So yeah. the biggest one, here you go, drum roll please, you know, 60 inch, yeah. right? 60 inch trout, that comes to the surface. Oh, it scares me because their heads are so big. And they tail walk. And they slam <sighs> flies like an anvil. It's like you're throwing the biggest boulder in the river on top of your fly and it explodes. People telling me that they don't run or jump. Like when I told my buddies <laughs> I was coming here, they're like, oh, they just dog down. I thought it'd be cool to catch a big one. Hmm. Okay, Mark, they are like tarpon. They. Flare those gills. They yeah, yeah. do tail walk. They run. They my fingers. You can see them right now. They're so burned <laughs> up. I'm wearing tape on my hands all day, all week. Yeah. They are 
ass kickers, and I'm actually a little bit afraid of them. <laughs> I landed that 48-incher yeah, yeah. this trip. Four-foot-long fish. I it's phenomenal. Can't, right? I, mean, I, was, I shook for an hour after that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't fish again after that, that day, because I... I was actually a little bit scared. And you said that fish could be my age or okay, you know, so 20 to 30 years. Here's the way it works. Ballpark. Yeah. Uh, a taman will grow 10 centimeters per year mm-hmm. for the first seven years. So a 70 centimeter taman, right, sub 30 inches taman is seven years old and has just reached sexual maturity. So at seven – they're able to to jump in the red and and do their thing. A major league team, and we consider anything you know a meter or forty inches. You know that's a that's a trophy fish. You know that fish can be pushing twenty years. A really really big fish, like you know you caught a really nice fish at forty eight inches. That one you're probably in that in that thirty plus year bracket. And a fifty year old fish. I mean a fifty inch fish. Some people talk about 50-year-old taming. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, 35, 40, 45, 50. You're talking, as I say, you know, the Beatles' White Album. Yeah. <laughs> now, that fish came out of the red when the Beatles released the White Album. It's insane. It's phenomenal, it's right? It's insane. But, okay, so before I go down the biology track, and I know we're mm. fighting time because of dinner, but Mongolia River Outfitters. Yeah. So you start... MRO. Right. So we start this, this little entity as a mechanism to, to, to drive conservation. And, and it grows and grows and grows. But what we're finding is, and we're, as we're growing, we're, we're sort of identifying what the problems are. Okay. Much of the problems we're seeing are, as I said, all of that stuff that we perceived as potential problems when we were setting up the protected area system in the 1990s all came to fruition. Okay. Right? And a lot of that really drove a spike in wealth, particularly with urban Mongolians. Right? Much of the wealth in Mongolia is concentrated within, I don't know, 12 blocks of the center of town Maybe. near the Capitol building there. Right? And, and outside of that, people are really poor. Inside of that, they're really rich. I mean really rich. Yeah, I noticed Phenomenally that. Phenomenally rich. Yeah. They got idle time on their hands. So what do they do? They take their black land cruisers and they cruise out to these rivers and they go fishing. They're not really educated about fishing. And there's groups like the Taman Fund with Charlie Kahn. Those guys are doing awesome work with educating these urban anglers. And there's a huge sea change that's happened in the last five years, more or less. A, you know, a realization and understanding and appreciation of catch and release and fly fishing. Big fly fishing culture that's blowing up now. Much because of, you know, much credit to, to those folks. As well as the Vermilions. You know, the Vermilions have done an outstanding job of driving conservation. You know, in but driving it how? Besides just educating the public, the the local public, right. about the importance of tourism and economics and, and conservation. Right. How are you guys driving, how are you driving this? Is it from a financial stance? I know that we all pay... A fee? Can you just kind of walk walk me through how? It's well, let me happening? back it up even more than sure. that, if, well, I, if I could for a second. Um, because so what we're all finding on these rivers, and you know, we're all all of us share a, a deep seated concern for rivers and wild places and taman, and taman represent wilderness in Mongolia. You've got a 50-year-old fish, this ancient fish that's, that relies upon a watershed that is pristine. If that watershed gets disturbed, the taman's gone. If you kill a 50-year-old fish, it takes 50 years for another one you know, to take its place, or decades for another one to take its place. Taman at one time occurred all the way from the Danube to Hokkaido. I don't know what that means. Uh, from all the way from Eastern Europe to Japan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I've heard of stories of them being in Germany. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah okay. ab- absolutely. You know, and, and as time and development has progressed, their habitat has been constrained to a few of these most remote and most pristine river systems. So if you're able to protect Taman, you're able to protect some of the most pristine and amazing watersheds left in the Northern Hemisphere. In, 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 in my opinion, particularly Mongolia or maybe Russia or Qaeda or Sakhalin or these other places with wild salmon center and others are 
that are working. The problem, the problem for all of us, the challenge was in the in the late 1990s, early 2000s, was that as these oligarchs, other people were people were getting very wealthy. A lot of them were coming out to these rivers, and they were fishing, and they didn't have the ethics, and they were killing fish. So they would show up. My, our other operation is very well established, been around for a long time. And uh, people would show up there, two bottles of vodka. They'd find a local person who is a fisherman, and there are local fishermen. Finally, and they say, hey, dude, take us out to the river. Show us where the tamen are, and we'll give you two bottles of vodka. And so these guys go, oh, yeah, explain a lot. Okay. that's awesome. So they go out and they show them the the, the, the taman. These you know the rich guys wouldn't know any better. Yeah, they they kill the taman, give the local guy two bottles of vodka. Thanks, great weekend. See you later. Well, you'd end up with a you know with a dead taman. So we said, okay, let's figure out a way to start streamside education to improve how everybody understands taman biology, and let's improve how people perceive the value of Taman and see if we can, with our tourism, try to drive some of that. So we, and it's a long story, but I teamed up, we teamed up with WWF. That's what they do. They do conservation. So we said, okay, WWF, World Wildlife Fund, a guy named Darren Collins, wonderful guy, Chimid Orchard, others. We said, let's work in partnership with you. You guys are the NGO. You do conservation. We do fishing. We do the fishing. We do the, con- the, the we all do conservation, but we do the, the 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 fishing, the marketing. We bring in the tourists, community. You help us to protect the river, and we'll continue to provide you with economic incentives to conserve the 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 fishery. And so it became a three way partnership, sort of a government community, uh, private enterprise, and NGO partnership to protect a watershed. We're not talking two staff here, because right now, this week, there's four of us, yeah. plus you guys. So there's, what, six six of us? Say six or seven of it's us. It's a light week, yes. Yeah. How many staff are there? Oh, I don't, I've, I've lost track at this I mean, point. I'm at 40. Like, the more, the merrier. It is every, every person we hire, it creates a potential fish conservation officer. Exactly. Every single one. Yeah. So what we've done is we took those the, the local fishermen, we work for WWF, and we said, okay, let's let's start out with a with a program of public awareness. So it was awesome. We had some of our guests came, including Perk Perkins from Orvis and and uh, some others, and we said, This is what we want to do. And they were behind it. A lot of these folks provided some nice financial support for us. Where does the financial support go? It goes through WWF. At that point, it went through WWF, and I'll, I can explain. Now we work with a number of different NGOs. Mm-hmm. It's grown substantially from this point. So we worked with WWF. We worked with a group called Rare. We started a Pride cam- campaign, a Tame and Pride campaign, okay. working with people within the watershed of the Onon, the other river where we work. And we said, okay, how do we help people understand that these fish, which once occurred from here all the way to there, are only occurring in a few specific places, and you are lucky enough to have them. You've got this 50-year-old fish, and it's so much more valuable in the river than on the dinner plate or, you know, for two bottles of vodka. And we can help you put a value on that as an incentive to conserve that, that, that species. So the money's going to education, really? It goes to all sorts of stuff. Okay. You know, it goes to all sorts of stuff. It goes to schools. It goes to better understanding of tame and biology. It goes to the fishing club. So we took all these folks who were, quote, unquote, poachers and working with WWF and Rare, people who um, were uh, the folks who received the two bottles of vodka. I said, okay, how many are you in each of these communities? I identified them. And there weren't that many. There's like 15 here, 10 there, whatever. We work in six different counties on, on that particular river. We identified those those people. So okay, we're going to organize you as a fishing club. And now we're going to create what we're going to call a Taman Sanctuary. And in that Taman Sanctuary, here's the deal. We will, with this, Mon- this national Mongolian company, MRO, right? We will manage international anglers. We'll, we'll market it. We'll provide service. We'll hire local people. We'll do all the stuff that you see. We'll bring international guides in who can train Mongolian guides. And you fished with a bunch of our Mongolian guides this week. They're they are awesome. It's fantastic. Unbelievable. And yeah. these guys, none of them are like fly fished. They you know, are 10 so years ago. talented. And now they rock. Right? So we'll do all of that stuff. Right? And then you guys protect the river. Yeah, whatever. Uh, this, this, this melange of, 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 partnership amongst all of us. And the Tame Sanctuary rules are very simple. 
you know, it's catch and release, it's fly fish only, three kilometer setback, so wild and scenic status. Within that three kilometers, there's no commercial forestry, there's no mining, there's no permanent infrastructure development for tourism, uh, there's no motorboats, uh, there's no commercial offtake of water, there's sort of a, a, a long list of, of things that basically establish the river as wild scenic status and it's about over there's about 300 kilometers of river 400 kilometers of of river so it's a lot of creek Mm -hmm. and then you local ex-poachers you become the fly fishing clubs or the fishing clubs and then you are responsible for any uh national angler who comes in so if i come from ulan and i go to that river i've got to go to the fishing club and I've got to get my permit from the fishing club. And then a member of the fishing club has to accompany me to the river and make sure that I'm following the rules while I'm fishing. So they act as part guide and part river keeper awesome. for all of the national anglers. And that becomes a farm team for bumping up to become a guide for the international operation that runs out of the company out of, out of Mongolia, all within the auspices of this Cayman Sanctuary concept. I haven't done an outstanding job of explaining that. But there's so many different facets. That's the problem is there's so many different layers to this program. Right. So is it working? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So we have really um, we have not super rigorous but fairly rigorous data that we, that we keep. So we keep much like an Atlantic salmon fishery. We keep uh, records of how many fish are caught and sizes and, and all the rest. And if you look, this operation you know, that, that you've experienced is sort of our new baby. Right, we're taking the same models. What river are we on? The- I'm not. I'm not saying. Oh, I, you know, yes. It's okay. like who does that? Yeah. Who, who <laughs> in God's green earth? I grew up in Montana. It's like oh, the dumbest thing you could possibly <laughs> do. It's like oh, this is where we fish. So you this don't advertise. You, you don't advertise. Never. It? We awesome. never mentioned. I didn't know that. I told you. I never. I never. I didn't want to look you guys up before I came. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to. I just wanted to show up and roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys don't have it on your website? You don't no advertise way. the name? No way. Cheers, man. No, because that's just it's terrible. You know, it's terrible because it, it's hard enough for the Mongolians to keep people off the river who aren't, you know, you have to have a permit. You cannot, as a foreigner, you cannot come to Mongolia and fish unless you come with a legal, legally authorized entity. So the fishing clubs are organized as a 501c3, or a Mongolian equivalent of it. So they're an NGO. They're a non-profit group. So they work entirely as a club. So MRO takes care of international anglers. They take care of national anglers. There's a limit on the total number of international anglers that can come. There's a limit, in principle, on the number of national anglers that can come. But if you're a local, if you're a county resident, there's no limit. So there's sort of a three-tiered system all of which is functionally directed towards the conservation of the Taman Sanctuary. And that is all directed towards the long-term survival of these fish. Then as I started to say, we've kept, and you said, does that work? And it's all a... Well, you're always going to learn. It's all a work in progress. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, nothing is perfect. You know, when, when, you, when you talk about it in this way, it's like, oh, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and it's difficult. As the Mongolians say, it's Hitsu. Okay. You know, it's Hitsu. And it's getting better all the time. It's not getting worse. And our records show that. So we keep very meticulous records um, on catch data. Just like it, yeah, like I, I said, noticed just that like on an Atlantic was... salmon fishery. It's like who caught what, where, how long was it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have tagging programs and genetics programs. And we kind of stopped the tagging. Now we have facial recognition stuff. Taman have a uh, facial pattern with spots on them. So you can use this wild ID program. It's developed out of, the, out of Dartmouth um, where you can ID the individual fish by its spotting patterns. Because they have like a brown trout sort of. Yeah. If you had to explain as a species what they look like to someone who had never seen it, mm. what would you explain a Taman to look like? I don't know. It's like brown, a weird trouty, cross between a brown trout and an Atlantic salmon. Yeah. Yeah, with a really bright red tail. Oh, they're so cool. The tail is stunning. So cool. It's like the sexy part of it. It's like, yeah. ooh, I like the tail. There's a butt on that thing. <laughs> we can go there. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Anyway, no, um, so we have really meticulous catch data yeah. on the other river over about a 15-year period. And you can see where we've gone from – 
Oh man, it's really hard to find a taming. To the last couple of years, we've averaged. I'm not going to say numbers, but a lot mm-hmm. of taming per week. Mark, the um, doka is getting very frustrated with us because dinner is getting cold. Let's so, go. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? No, I, I, I'm not sure that I did such a wonderful job of explaining things. And there's a lot of details and there's so many people who deserve credit for this stuff. It's not about me. There's a whole pantheon of folks who are concerned about taming and taming conservation and conservation of, of wild rivers. But the bottom line is this all depends. And this is not a sales pitch. And I say it all the time. It depends upon anglers choosing to come to Mongolia. If we don't have anglers coming to Mongolia, we can't create the incentives that are required in order to protect these rivers. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv oh that's awesome don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment